Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics. Thank you so much for tuning in to this weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards, wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And you know what I'm going to say? As ever, we have got so much to cram in in our time together as we reflect on and make sense of this extraordinary political situation. Liz Truss, a new Prime Minister, the only Prime Minister I can recall who has not had a Prime Ministerial honeymoon with the electorate, indeed the exact opposite. And I must say right at the beginning, welcome to the Anti-Growth Coalition. I think everybody in this rock and roll politics cooperative, although they are hugely productive with all the bread making and all the other stuff that goes on while you listen to the podcast. I think you're all part of the Anti-Growth Coalition because you listen to podcasts. And, you know, I'm on this podcast and I do, uh, I'm absolutely tick the Anti-Growth Coalition membership or qualifications, even though I kind of want growth, 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 to quote Liz Truss. And some of you rightly admonish me for not focusing enough on issues like climate change in the podcast, although we did a special on that sort of in Edinburgh via one of uh, the listeners there, Nick Radcliffe. But yeah, welcome to the Anti-Growth Coalition and the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. So this is what we're going to do in our time together, if it's okay with all of you. A few notices, first of all, and then we go on to my kind of reflections. I'm going to look at... um, the role of the markets, in inverted commas, in um, British politics. Because although the markets are making life hell for Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, they always present a huge challenge for Labour governments. The markets, again, in inverted commas, are far more wary by instinct of Labour governments. And I'm going to come on to that if it's all right with all of you. Brilliant questions on a whole range of things connected with the trust era and other matters. So yeah, we better get going. Be productive, please. Grow the economy. Make that pie bigger while you're listening to the podcast. Indeed, I know some of you cook pies listening to the podcast. Well, please make the pie huge and so we could all enjoy more of it. So some notices for you. Uh, Those of you who kindly subscribe to Patreon, there'll be a shout out at the end, actually, of some of you who kindly subscribe. You will be getting the bonus podcast this week for this month, a new series on supposed cock-ups in British politics. And the supposed is quite an important part of it, because when you examine what appear to be calamitous cock-ups, there was a kind of reasoning behind it. And I think it's very illuminating in the current context with that probably one of the biggest self-inflicted wounds a government has ever made since post-war British politics, that financial statement from Kwarteng a few Fridays ago. But there tends to be a kind of reasoning behind what seems a calamity. And the first one we'll be looking at in the bonus podcast is the poll tax, which is it is multi-layered and more complex than you would you would just think, God, what a disaster. Thatcher had obviously gone bonkers by then. And that was incidentally the view of some cabinet ministers at the time. But it was a bit more complex. Anyway, that's for those of you who subscribe and thank you for doing so. Live shows coming up. Wow, they're going to be, well, we'll have to go on till midnight, but we won't. And we'll have some fun at the live shows as well. But we will have to delve deep 
at King's Place on October the 26th, at the legendary Rope Tackle Theatre on the following day, October the 27th, for those of you on the South Coast. And I am thrilled to announce a Rock and Roll Politics Christmas special, first time at a new venue in Brighton, the uh, Market Theatre. I think it's the old Market Theatre in Brighton, and I'm thrilled to say tickets are on sale for that Christmas special in Brighton. And I know lots of you email me saying, oh, can you uh, come to Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle, and so on. I'm going to start looking at possible venues and do suggest them if you've got them. But the, that Christmas special in Brighton, I'm really excited about because it's a new place. So do come along and book those tickets, and we will have some festive fun as British politics goes wild. But before all of that, I think I think there were some other notices today. Lots of notices for the anti-growth coalition. It just shows the more notices, we are productive in the anti-growth coalition. We're all working really hard. Anyway, the markets. It's very interesting. I was thinking back to some of our podcasts together, you know, when things appeared to be going badly wrong for Boris Johnson. And yet, and I know it tormented Keir Starmer, the polls suggested voters still felt enthusiastic about him, certainly in England, until the scandals. And I still think, by the way, that the inquiry into the pandemic will be condemning of him and his operation. But the political consequence of the early stages of Johnson's misconduct in the pandemic was to win the historic by-election gain, to win Hartlepool. That happened after many, many avoidable deaths in the pandemic. And you sort of wondered about England and the electorate and its possibility of lapsing into close to a one-party state in England, a Conservative Party in sort of eternal rule, in that voters seemed, and I know voters don't follow politics in any great detail, but that kind of seemed to lead to, oh yeah, we'll vote for him, he's great, he's a bit of fun. And that was the kind of level of it, you know. Do you remember the kind of thumbs up for those uh, flights to Rwanda when they announced that, polls suggesting huge support? They still haven't happened, by the way, uh, the flights. I know it's it's the dream of the new Home Secretary. Literally, she described it as her dream to get those flights going. But isn't it interesting when voters turn against uh, Conservative rule? And it is to do with turmoil in the markets. And that's what does it. Now, arguably, the... Brexit deal negotiated by Boris Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost was as damaging and probably is more damaging in the longer term than an eruption of market turmoil in response to a single event, Kwarteng's disastrous financial statement. Nothing. Uh, Voters liked it. Get Brexit done. We've got it done. It's. Do you remember he unveiled Frosty's final negotiated trade deal on Christmas Eve? Christmas present to the nation from Lord Frosty Frost. You know, and voters felt thrilled, and you know all the rest of it. It was and is a deeply damaging deal, which actually, ironically, is one of the biggest uh, threats to Truss's growth, growth growth strategy. 
you will not get growth with Lord Frosty Frost deal. And indeed, Lord Frosty Frost at one point said economic growth wasn't the point of his deal, it was freedom. Uh, Lord Frosty Frost has never really explained what he meant by freedom, one of the most complex and yet ubiquitous terms in British politics. But it certainly wasn't going to bring about economic growth, the opposite. But voters were fine with all that. And in 2010, the Cameron Osborne economic experiment, which incidentally has some echoes with the Trust Kwarteng one, you know, they got the thumbs up. Real-term spending cuts in response to a global financial crisis and a pretense that they would balance the books within a single term. And when they didn't, they went to an election and said, well, we'll balance it in the next one. And voters gave it the thumbs up. But that's all acceptable. It wouldn't be acceptable uh, under a Labour government to fail on those terms, but for a Tory government it is. But market turmoil is punished for two reasons, I think. One, a general sense that, oh, I thought they were competent, even if they weren't, by the way, the voters think. Here is a very tangible example of incompetence. The other is, of course, that it affects what Harold Wilson used to call the pound in your pocket. You know, there they were saying they were going to cut stamp duty, get the housing market going, and suddenly people are finding mortgages being taken off that market and interest rates rising in response to a government initiative. And voters then turn. And they did in 1992 when the markets, in inverted commas, hovered over sterling, when it was in the exchange rate mechanism. And uh, God, I remember the speeches from John Major and Norman Lamont. They had no choice but to say it. You know, the pound will be resilient. We will not be leaving the ERM. And then they were forced out. On the day it happened, they to try and support the pound, interest rates were put up to preposterous levels. And voters turned having re-elected the Conservative government after that poll tax I mentioned at the beginning of the poll tax, after a deep economic recession, the mood was stay with nurse for fear of something worse, and voters put them in, in 92. But after that market turmoil, the humiliation of the pound being forced out of the ERM, voters turned and the Conservatives weren't ahead in the opinion polls again for many, many years. And of course, famously, Labour won a landslide in 1997. So market turmoil is what does it. And the markets have real power, especially when you're borrowing money, because they can speculate away in all kinds of different formats to create a mood of political and economic instability, real power. These unelected figures who, you know, speculate on the pound and all the other things that they do at times of instability. And then watching all of this is the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, set up by George Osborne. As has been widely commented, was meant to be a trap for Labour, has become a trap for Truss and Sunak. But I'm going to come on to why it could be a trap for Labour too in a moment. The essence of the trap now is quite extraordinary. And by the way, all prime ministers in the end, after often years and years of being in power, 
become trapped. They look ahead and there are obstacles everywhere. Restless MPs on their side, public opinion, the media and so on. It's unique for a prime minister to become trapped in a month. But she is, because when Kwarteng made all those unfunded tax cuts, the kind of general assumption as they rushed towards that announcement, the assumption she had anyway was that you could borrow this money. Uh, she famously said in the cabinet meeting where they discussed the rise in national insurance to pay for social care, although it didn't in that mad era pay for social care, it paid for the NHS. She said in cabinet, I think, we, why can't we borrow this? You know, we borrowed after world wars and paid it back over a long period of time. We've had equivalent shocks now. Why can't we borrow? And incidentally, the, there's a validity to that argument. She just wanted to borrow for the wrong reasons, to pay for tax cuts. There is an argument that you borrow to invest, and that stimulates the economy in ways these tax cuts won't. But it's not a wholly invalid argument. But the scale of the borrowing and so on, so forth was off the Richter scale. And that's what freaked the markets out. So after the markets freaked, they thought, oh my God, how do we stabilize this? And they hinted that they had big spending cuts in mind. This wouldn't all be unfunded. They had a medium-term plan of uh, spending cuts. But they preside over a country, although you wouldn't believe it from their opening statements because they haven't focused on it at all, where public services are on their knees, the trains aren't running most of the time, we know about the state of the NHS, and so on. And they then contemplated or hinted at uh, benefit cuts. And Tory MPs said, we will not accept that. And yet, and this is the trap, if they don't announce specified and significant spending cuts, it is quite possible the OBR will give the whole project a thumbs down and the markets will freak again. Now, the way they might try and get away with it is to outline tight spending limits over the next five years or so without specifying where the big cuts will fall. But that might not be enough for this OBR and it might not be enough for the markets. And yet, if they specify big spending cuts, Tory MPs in insurrectionary mood yet again will turn and will not give them the space to impose things like those benefit cuts. That benefit cut won't happen. And she wanted it to happen, like she wanted the top rate of tax to fall. So it is an extraordinary early form of prime ministerial incarceration. An incarceration she trusts will find more frustrating than most incarcerated prime ministers because she wanted to be this great crusading revolutionary, uh, misreading the revolutionary instincts of Margaret Thatcher, which we discussed in the podcast last week. But there is a twist in all of this, which is this. Labour, too, if it wins, and I speak to a lot of uh, senior Labour figures, they're sort of pinching themselves, but they now dare to think they could win with an overall majority of some substance. I mean, they dare to think so on good grounds. All we've got are opinion polls, and the leads are massive. And as I have already commented, Major never recovered from market turmoil in 1992, and it seems that voters who give great 
instinctive tolerance to Tory leaders and Tory prime ministers have made a judgment about Liz Truss. And once judgments are formed, they are rarely unformed. But what a challenge. And there was a brilliant email from a listener last week. I hope I read it out, but if I didn't, it was in essence this. Does the market turmoil plunging the trust government into crisis explain New Labour's caution in the build-up to 97 and beyond? And the answer is yes. And it really does explain. You know, it was very frustrating when, again, public services were on their knees in the build-up to the 97 election for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to say they would stick to the Tory spending plans for two years, there would be no increases in income tax for five years and so on. And then they gave up all control of interest rates on, in effect, the first full day of the government, that famous day when Gordon Brown announced the independence of the Bank of England. And all of it was addressed partly to reassure the markets. What Gordon Brown, when he was shadow chancellor, dreaded more than anything else, and rightly, it's the stuff of nightmares for Labour shadow chancellors and Labour chancellors, is um, devaluation, market turmoil, which had tormented earlier Labour governments. And therefore, he put in place a kind of protective shields all over the place to try and create a framework of economic stability. But that inevitably meant it was a much slower progress towards greater investment in public spending uh, on public services, even though those services were on their knees. Famously, it wasn't until the second term where he increased national insurance to pay for significant increases in NHS spending. And that, of course, made a difference. Hospitals appeared, walk-in centres appeared. You could see a GP very quickly. This thing, this current government proclaiming, you will under us hopefully see a GP within a fortnight. I mean, this is low-level stuff. And we know it is because of our brilliant correspondence in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative in other places, Brussels and Germany and so on, telling us about how much easier it is to get, and in France, to get um, access to their equivalent to GPs. But, so it was completely justified. But this time, assuming there will be a Labour government in 2024, public services are in a more dire state than in 97. The NHS in particular, the demands are intense, the waiting lists are growing. There are also now the Brexit consequences of acute labour shortages, which have to be addressed in two terms. A, you have to get the labour, and B, you have to pay them. But the first thing, and the trust experience is a reminder of this, a Labour government must do, is to reassure the markets, even though the markets, in inverted commas, are not full of demigods with great insight into economics and politics, but they wield ultimate power. Because if they decide to strike, governments and prime ministers and chancellors do not recover. It's very interesting looking back to the Labour government of the 1960s. In 1966, Wilson won a huge majority. He was forced to devalue the pound with his Chancellor Jim Callaghan in 1967. And really, Wilson never recovered from that. 
He had a glowing media and was hugely popular in the country, really up until devaluation, after which the media turned and Wilson's self-confidence took a huge dip and they lost the 1970 election. It's to Wilson's great credit that he stayed the course and won two more elections in 1974. But devaluation traumatised him. He had to get rid of Callaghan and put in Roy Jenkins. And then if you go back to the Labour government, the 45 Labour government, the Labour government that is always referred to as this triumphant reforming government, it actually tired, it was almost a physical, towards the end of that term of government up to the 1950 election and beforehand endured the trauma of devaluation again. And they never really recovered and were soon out of power for years and years and years. And so the next Labour government, like the last one, will have to work heaven and earth to keep those markets on side. But in keeping those markets on side and in reassuring this OBR, as Kwarteng is trying desperately to, but without being able to quite work out how, the space for what is needed in terms of reviving public services, which incidentally is the best route to growth. What people tell me in areas outside London, businesses, is two things are stopping them from kind of investing. One, labour shortages. That's a huge, huge issue around the country. And the second is the lack of infrastructure in some of these places, including transport infrastructure. So you invest. Obviously, you need to invest in the NHS. It will be even more on its knees by the time of the 24 election. But how when the electoral politics and the way the media culture is in Britain makes it very hard for a Labour Party in opposition to go into the election committed to tax rises of any kind of kind of tangible sort, certainly not income tax rises. They did dare to say they would reverse the top rate of tax cut because that was so obviously unpopular to the point that Truss has now had to reverse it. But other routes of raising revenue are difficult. And yet borrowing, and they're already committed to borrowing for their ambitious green plans, is also limited. We know because look what happened to Truss and Kwarteng with their borrowing plans. So how in government, you know, Labour can follow the new Labour plan for winning elections. And remember, as I said earlier, uh, Blair and Brown sticking to income tax rates of the Tory government and spending plans, which Ken Clark, the outgoing chancellor, described as eye-wateringly tight. But then it takes ages for the revival of public services, which the country is yearning for. And I'm not quite sure how they get round this conundrum. I'll be interested in hearing your views, but they will have to. There cannot be a government that uh, kind of is so cautiously incremental after all that has happened that actually people don't notice much change in the quality of their lives in the early years. Now, I, 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 there, is the, there is a sort of new Labour route through where you do things that don't cost money like constitutional reform and you make some early attempts to improve very likely 
kind of public services and you kind of reconfigure spending allotments uh, slots so they go to certain parts of the country and not others but but such is the state of public services there needs to be a big level of investment as well as reform reform alone i hear tony Blair say look it's all about technology well technology gets you some of the way but it doesn't pay for nurses doctors gps and all the rest of it i'm afraid i raise it as a conundrum and a challenge and the solution i think we should all explore together in the weeks and months to come but of course as well very conscious that there is the ultimate barrier for that party to pass which is winning uh which they're useless at so we you know i'm saying fully aware that even though polls suggest a 30 point lead in some cases there is that barrier to overcome as well but truss and quateng have been quite the gift on that front yeah oh by the way coming soon the electoral reform special can't precisely give you the date but i will yeah it's coming up i've kind of decided where i think i stand having been an opponent am i still and i know what a lot of you think because i still get so many emails about it but now if it's okay with all of you some of your questions Now, it will be just some, I'm afraid. There have been brilliant questions, but hundreds of them. I think the trust era has got you all going in a way that has got me going as well. <laughs> and there are many, many emails. I've read them all, and maybe I'll have time to read some of them out next week. But do keep them coming in, because this week is going to be fascinating with MPs back and prime minister's questions and all the others by the time you've heard this there'll probably been prime minister's questions but anyway you know the address if you don't here it is steve rick 14 at icloud.com and off we go dorothy aitkin looks at this growth thing what is the point of the polemic growth anti-growth what about growth of equality fairness well-being yeah do you remember dorothy early on in the cameron era there was going to be a sort of well-being measurement it was kind of part of steve hilton's kind of uh, psychedelic thing but it's absolutely it's absolutely right but what they missed out was that good public services is a part of a route to well-being um, and that was not going to happen with real-term spending cuts, which is what we got. I mean, what a confused government. That well, Was it confused? Kind of wanted different ends from turbocharged Thatcherism. So it was confused on one level. Yeah, I agree. Growth is complex and challenging. And I thought uh, trust sounded more like an accountant, you know, at a golf club, having had a few pints in her speech. Oh, you know, get clear away regulations. Oh, tax, cut all of that. And then, oh, what we want is growth. And without any exploration of what form growth takes and how and why, as if a tax cut for a few will just, oh, yeah, right, we, we'll kind of work hard than we're already doing and we'll grow the pie yeah it there needs to be a much more balanced it is fundamental growth and it is the key especially in britain where unlike a lot of europe you can't have a grown-up conversation about tax and spend as roy jenkins once observed and it still applies britain wants u.s levels of taxation and european standards of public services and no one has been able to crack that circle new labor did pretty well in the end with that 
their stealthy taxes and but it took one hell of a long time so growth is part of it because then you get revenue to pay for things and then you get the scope for fairness and well-being and so on but you have to define it more clearly and there are all kinds of complex factors as you suggest dorothy thank you paul hickling writes i'm an a-level politics teacher and listen to your podcast religiously oh thank you i also recommend it to my students great i hope they are tuning in paul in fact test them to make sure that they are and if they aren't make it compulsory paul Anyway, Paul said, as part of the course, we have to teach about prime ministers and have case studies evaluating their time in office, development of policy, ability to control events. I normally teach the prime minister around Easter time and was wondering, given last week, that was the party conference week, whether it was worth bothering to plan a lesson on the trust premiership or whether she will be, by then, a distant memory. Well, you can imagine, Paul, this is a question I get asked a lot. You probably all get asked it as well. How long do you think she will last? And I don't know the answer to that. As I've uh, suggested before, my sense always is with prime ministers, they tend to last longer than media orthodoxy assumes. Even in the case of Johnson, incidentally, I mean, he should have gone long ago. He should actually, and it would have happened to a Labour prime minister. Uh, He should have gone during the early stages of the pandemic. Basically, when he buggered off to Chequers, when the uh, virus was raging towards Britain, having gone through Italy and France, and he went off to Chequers, he should have gone then. He lasted much longer and said, won the Hartlepool by-election and many other things. So I'm not sure, and Nora Tory MPs, actually, you hear some of them say it's desperate, it's dire, you hear most of them say that. But I think we're in a slightly different place with her, which is this that every event now becomes a test that she needs to pass. So a prime minister's questions is a test. And if she does badly, the sense of panic in the parliamentary party will deepen. If she does okay, she's through that. Then she addresses the backbenchers at a meeting of the 1922 committee. She has to do well. And if she does, she's fine. If she doesn't, the panic deepens. And I think she's at that stage, usually prime ministers are at that stage years on, but she's at that stage now. And she's also at the stage where she can't get through some of her revolutionary plans. And that means that she is not the person she thought she could be. Again, listen last week about the lack of space on the political stage that she hadn't noticed, she hadn't got so to speak. Now let's get our regular French perspective. Thank you, Paul. Get those students listening. Dominique Joule, the French government has rejected proposals to impose power restrictions and instead on Thursday launched a plan of encouragement and education with the aim of achieving a reduction in the use of energy by 10% compared to 2019. The 50-page plan was launched by nine government ministers. President Macron made a speech in support of the information campaign and TV adverts are going to follow next week. Yeah, what a contrast to uh, trust uh, blocking a government information campaign on the grounds that it's the nanny state. I wonder whether she will be forced to back down on this as well because it is crazy not to provide information about how to conserve 
energy, as if it's a kind of nanny state. It, it is, you know, this the libertarian view of freedom is so limited and can be turned on its head. So basically, she's giving us in the UK the freedom to not know how to conserve energy, and therefore the freedom to run out of it. Whereas in France, Germany and others, they are planning in case they need to preserve and advising accordingly. And that's called grown-up politics compared with this. It's very interesting that the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, not known as a statist, um, even though he is obsessed with nannies, he's against the so-called nanny state, are in favour of publishing this thing. So is Ian Duncan Smith. So let's see what happens. But thank you for uh, giving us the French perspective. Anthony Wilson writes, thank you as ever for your insight. Oh, thank you, Anthony. Are we in a moment of what James Callaghan called a political sea change? And if so, what does this mean in terms of complacency being the main danger for Keir Starmer and Labour? Yeah, famously, Callaghan, during the 1979 election, which he was going to lose, turned round to his advisor, Bernard Donoghue, and said, there's a sea change in British politics and there's nothing we can do about it. The tides were pushing out Labour and bringing in Thatcherism. And Anthony wonders whether there is such a sea change now. Well, I think as we've discussed in this podcast, there is a sea change against the trust Kwarteng regime. Now, where that turns, I, I had already detected a sea change away from sort of that turbocharged Thatcherism of Cameron and Osborne, with Theresa May talking about the good the state can do, with Johnson, albeit erratically, talking about being a Rooseveltian, with Rishi Sunak being forced against his Thatcherite instincts to spend quite a lot through borrowing. So I think there is something deeper going on, which is why there has been such a reaction against this uh, libertarian right-wing politics of trust. No, I don't think uh, complacency will be a danger because Labour says they're so used to losing. There is always the opposite risk. It, it happened with new Labour. That caution is so deeply embedded that it doesn't make use of the political space that might be available to it. The media coverage of early New Labour, including the BBC, was, God, they are so arrogant, uh, especially when they won a landslide. They never were. Caution was the main problem, uh, not arrogance. And I think that will be the case again with uh, a Labour Party that has been out of power for so long again. But thank you, Anthony. Interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, the sea change, tides in politics, very, very interesting. Not to do with leaders, but the deeper tides of politics. David Magliaco, I hope I've pronounced that right, David. A long-time listener, first-time question. Uh, should recent polls prove correct, a big if, obviously, many prominent Conservative MPs would lose their seats. While some older ex-MPs might retire or enter the Lords, many, old and young, would find it hard to re-enter the Commons due to the sheer number chasing any seats that might become available in by-elections. Historically, how have heavy electoral defeats and the consequent changes to the composition of the losing party affected subsequent politics, e.g. Labour in 1983, Conservatives in 1997? What an interesting question. Now, in 1983, uh, Labour were slaughtered, but many of its big hitters survived, with the exception of Tony Benn 
who lost his seat in Bristol in 1983. And that made a big difference because it meant that Neil Kinnock was virtually guaranteed to win the leadership contest. Whereas if Tony Benn had stood, who knows what would have happened. So that was a big consequence. But other than that, the big hitters remained. So the sort of the Kinnock shadow cabinets were were full of big figures, you know, Dennis Healy, Roy Hattersley, uh, lots of others were there uh, from the beginning of that 83 slaughter parliament. The Conservatives in 1997 was very different. A lot of the big players, remember Michael Portillo famously lost his seat and quite a few others. And those that did survive tended to take a back seat. Uh, Michael Heseltine, uh, for example, became a backbencher. Michael Howard at first became a backbencher before famously taking over the leadership. So that did make uh, the, 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 the William Hague shadow cabinets, the early ones, were very weak. And frankly, Tony Blair ran rings around them. So that did have an impact. David said, I listened to the pod while driving. Well, that's not very productive, David, unless you're driving to somewhere to add growth to the economic pie, which I hope you are. But anyway, thank you very much. Good question. Noah Keat writes, while it's tricky to find a reason to commend the Prime Minister, I think most people can agree she made the correct decision to attend the inaugural meeting of the European political community in Prague last week, involving EU and non-EU member states. It appeared to suggest a grown-up approach towards working with other nations. Yeah, it is interesting. And there's a sort of, seems to be a more diplomatic approach towards the Northern Ireland Protocol. The Northern Ireland Minister, Steve Baker, seems to have gone through some weird kind of metamorphosis where, I don't know if you saw him, the clip of him at a fringe meeting in the Tory conference saying about how he understood about taking the knee and how we need, need to engage with the European community and see it from their perspective as well as ours. And Truss was absolutely right to attend. Who knows what where it's going to go? But of course she has got to engage. So I agree that in the most calamitous start for any prime minister in modern times, that was slightly more encouraging. Yeah, and Scott Croswell, another uh, sort of was a student until recently, as was the case with uh, Noah Keat. With Truss returning the Tories to a more Thatcherite position from the Johnson era, this is Scott Croswell. Why is it that the media and moderate Tories continue to say that David Cameron is a centrist? In my view, Truss has returned her party to, in some ways, a more Cameroonite position. Uh, Is Cameron considered centrist because of his liberal social views? Well, as you probably know, Scott, that is my view. I mean, he's not a centrist. The BBC still refer to David Cameron and George Osborne as centrists. They were, I mean, you can agree with it or disagree with it, but they were uh, advocates in economic policy of turbocharged Thatcherism. And they, but because they were were social liberals, Cameron became one, Osborne was one, they were seen as centrist. But liberalism, social liberalism is one thing. Economic liberalism, it depends what form it takes, often places people absolutely on the right of uh, politics. Time for a couple more. Sorry, I've got loads and loads. I'd love to read more. Let's just see. Uh, Rob Watson, it seems to me that the Tories have now become split between neoliberal free marketeers who aren't concerned with questions of ethics and fairness and the social conscience Tories who don't want to see a whole fire bonfire of social values in order to fuel riskiest experiments with the economy. 
people like uh, Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove. What do you think the lessons are for Labour in meeting this challenge and how does Keir Starmer do it in a way that keeps the opposition to this Tory cult of Truss and Co focused on beating the next set of elections? Yeah, oh, and Rob says, uh, keep up the great work. I'm off to shove my head back under the duvet until all this blows over. (laughs) You could be under the duvet for quite some time. If you don't mind, Rob, we've got so many brilliant questions. I have kind of discussed the challenge, I think, for Keir Starmer. It's not just about winning, but what you do when you get there, when you have to reassure those markets, the markets, the powerful, unelected markets. So the challenges are huge, but um, a route to electoral victory is clearer than it has been for uh, many years for Labour, I think. Yeah, who's now? Nigel Tantrum, he's in, he, uh, still loving the show. Uh, thank you. Uh, and But he's happy to be in Tokyo. Nigel lives in Tokyo. Apparently, we're being promised efficiency savings. I'm over 60 and can't remember a government not promising efficiency savings. Exactly. Surely over the past half century, all the savings that could have been made have been made. And if not, why not? This highlights, as I said, the, the dilemma for Truss and Kwarteng. The, the, you can always find efficiency savings in inverted commas. It usually saves about 10 pence. And in finding the efficiency savings, you probably have to spend money in doing so. And it's uh, people often are, in theory, supportive of the idea of spending cuts and then when you specify them Tory MPs from all over the place start protesting and that is the dilemma there and there are many uh, kind of dilemmas Joel Rawlings writes he's in he's from the beautiful island of Mauritius oh lucky you uh, they're on an extended holiday wow well it's amazing I hope you're listening on the beach Joel you know having a kind of glass of cool lager but you're obviously not adding to economic growth at all in Mauritius he noted that uh, he was having drinks with some other people out there mainly uh, guests from France and he says none of them had heard of Liz Truss is that a bad thing and you know what does that do when people don't know the new prime minister is well actually given her start Joel, it's probably better that they don't. I wouldn't read too much into that. Most prime ministers aren't known abroad for quite some time. Um, so I would just enjoy your time in Mauritius and and worry about the trust era when you get back. Graham Gould wonders about he 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 is um someone who's disillusioned with the Conservatives but hasn't been won over by Labour. There are a lot like that, like uh, the legendary Stuart who gave me the U- Union Jack socks. He's he's written promising more socks. Thank you, Stuart. And he wonders about um, uh, Graham Gould. Wonders whether Keir Starmer needs uh, uh, better speechwriters to frame arguments to win over politically homeless conservatives. Yeah, well, I thought his speech at the party conference was good, actually, and began to frame arguments and was delivered in an effective way. But there's no doubt that while voters have turned against the trust government and are moving towards Labour. Keir Starmer's personal ratings now are, are remarkably high compared with hers. They, have, they will work around the clock having to frame arguments and explain why, why, why. It's always the why question. Answer the why question about why voters should turn to them with enthusiasm and not just because they turn against trust that's that's always the thing uh, laundry joe wonders whether the sun might back labor next time uh, whether labor when in power might pass a plurality ownership law limiting owners to one national newspaper yeah i well i think 
that is one thing that a Labour government should consider. The, the, the media, they won't do it in advance of the election because they want as many newspapers as possible to back them. But I bet the Times don't back Labour at the election. So, well, let's let's see what they do. I mean, in government, they would have the space to do something about that ownership. That's, that, that is their only route. They can't do any other thing. And it will be risky because many newspapers will claim this is an, a, a block on media freedom, but it's not. It's a block on the number of foreign owners who can come over and completely dominate foreign culture. Again, it could be argued it's an act of freedom, not an act of oppression. But let's see Laundry Joe. I think they've got more space to be radical in areas like the Constitution and all the rest of it than that sort of area of media ownership. Obviously, with the economy, we've discussed there are these constraints although they do need to deal with them. Matthew Ryder uh, writes about, oh, he walks in the Cambridgeshire countryside. Oh, Matthew, you're coming to King's Place. See you there in uh, on October the 26th. He wonders, I'm wondering if we're witnessing the start of the breakup of the Tory party. I see some parallels with the turmoil in the Labour Party in the early 80s and the SDP breakaway. Possibly, Matthew, there is certainly a level of internal discontent. That There's been nothing like it. There were echoes with 1992 after the ERM collapse but this this is kind of deeper except this that it is really a schism on the right of the Tory party at the moment uh, the Sunakite kind of Thatcherites and the Reagan Kwarteng libertarians it is a kind of it, it is a huge schism, but one confined to the right. Whereas with the SDP, it was a breakaway on all kinds of different policy areas and didn't work in the end. Uh, splits and setting up new parties, risks, risks, risks. James Gill wonders after the Tory party whether the Lib Dems were lucky not to have their party conference. James, they were deeply unlucky. It's the only publicity they get, the Lib Dems, and it was rotten luck that they didn't uh, get their conference. And uh, the, the leadership would have been in despair about it, to be honest. Venetia Kane lists the reasons why she thinks uh, uh, Liz Truss will survive. Uh, I'm kind of, My instinct is with you, of Anisha in the short term anyway. Graham Brady, the chair of the 22 committee, has said she's safe for 12 months, although, of course, Venetia, they could change the rules. The uh, As when people wanted Johnson to go, uh, who do you replace? This is a good point. Who do you get to replace her? Uh, it's never guaranteed that the one you want will get it unless it's manipulated. But they all agree in advance who it is, Sunak or whoever, and just put him in. But how you that route is is full of obstacles and so on. She's not going to resign. So Venetia says there'll be no voluntary resignation. Part of Listras is loving it, believe it or not. Yeah, there we go. Pommy Harmer says, I love listening to your podcast generally with a gin in hand and with my whole attention. That's the way to do it. That's the way, please. Total attention fueled by gin is the dream combination for us lot in the rock and roll politics cooperative. So she says that with trusts and Quateng talking about lowering taxes to put more money in our pockets, but in our current economic position, where the Bank of England is trying to reduce inflation by raising interest rates and the market response to the mini budget resulted in debt becoming more expensive, surely any tax reductions are offset by current mortgage rises. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is the ultimate twist that actually it's costing everyone quite a lot of money, their package to address the cost of living 
crisis. That's why they're in trouble. You've summed it up. It must be the gin, probably, but you've summed up the, the reason why it's such a tangible crisis for them. Pommy also wonders why trains aren't are so much better in Europe. That's a whole podcast, Pommy. Yeah, Stuart's got, uh, I'm going to do it next week, Stuart, musical options um, for the various uh, governments linked to, he, he said he recently read that she uh, she created an ABBA cabinet. The winner takes it all. In other words, just the people who supported her in the cabinet. So it's become an ABBA cabinet. The winner takes it all. I'll read it to you now. This is so he's 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 linked all the governments to music. Wilson Callahan simply read Stuart. Some people thought they weren't read enough. Thatcher, her cabinet started as wet, wet, wet. Then as she got into a stride, it became no doubt. And at the end, they were the killers. Yeah. And remember that. Uh, it was wet, wet, wet at the beginning, Liz Truss. You misread what Thatcher did by not putting your internal opponents in. Uh, Major, no women in the cabinet initially, so men at work, but soon turn into dire straits. That's a good summing up of the Major era. Blair, new order, and it was. Brown, as the polls deteriorated, faithless. Cameron, the pretenders. May, garbage. Johnson, Blondie, the who. <laughs> and now you've got Truss, Abba, and Madness. Oh, how music makes sense of it all. That's it. All our efforts. And Stuart gets a load of music examples and makes sense of it all. Anyway, look, thank you so much for uh, listening. I've got one more thing I want to do. Those of you who do kindly subscribe to Patreon, the bonus podcast will be out this week. And as I say, there will be details on this um, very uh, podcast blurb. For those of you who want to come to King's Place on October the 26th or to go to uh, the legendary uh, uh, Rope Tackle in Shoreham and then, uh, say, a great, exciting new venue for um, uh, those of you who want to come to Brighton for the Christmas uh, special. I want to also thank Podmasters for presiding over this and I often forget because I'm so concentrating on all of us lot in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative but thank you to everyone at Podmasters but look, thank you so much for listening oh, what a week coming up so let's get together next week to make sense of it all again thank you, take care, bye bye